and welcome to UCD ScholarCast. I'm Emily Pine from UCD School of English, Drama and Film. The following lecture from the series Gender and Commemoration, part of the Irish Memory Studies Network, will be given by Professor Margaret Kelleher, Professor of Anglo-Irish Literature and Drama in the School of English, Drama and Film at UCD. Memory Studies and Famine Studies, Gender, Genealogy, History I'll begin with three quotations which serve as epigraphs for this talk. The first is the commentary provided by artist Roan Gillespie, which accompanies his sculpture Statistic 1 and Statistic 2 on view in Gortemore Museum, Quinnipec, Connecticut. Gillespie writes... Under one small municipal parking lot on Staten Island, some 650 human bodies have been discovered. Most are the remains of Irish immigrants who, having fled the devastation of famine, survived the horrors of the coffin ships, had, on arrival in the New World, died in quarantine from the diseases they carried with them. Amazingly, it has been possible to identify the name age, date and cause of death of most of those who were so unceremoniously disposed of in this mass grave. Having spent some time at the site and with those involved, I felt the need to offer some small dignity to those forgotten dead by cutting their names into bronze. It was my way of taking time to contemplate the horror behind these statistics. I would need to make 5,000 tables like these to record the known deaths resulting from the famine in Ireland. My second quotation comes from Philip Roth's novel The Plot Against America. Turned wrong way round, the relentless unforeseen was what we schoolchildren studied as history. Harmless history, where everything unexpected in its own time is chronicled on the page as inevitable. The terror of the unforeseen is what the science of history hides, turning a disaster into an epic. And my third epigraph is taken from McKinney's Irish Times review of the Blighted Nation radio series, first broadcast by RTE in January 2013. Heaney writes... But while his righteous, nationalist-flavoured rhetoric lacked subtlety, Coogan's insistent focus on the suffering of the famine's victims struck a more sympathetic chord than the scrupulously even-handed approach of Daly and Gray, who afforded more balance to the ruling establishment than seemed necessary. Detachment may be vital for academic studies, but in the context of a popular history show, Coogan's polemics resonated more. Heaney is referring here to one of a number of recent debates featuring writer Tim Pat Coogan, sparked by the publication of Coogan's controversial work Famine Plot, and Heaney's comments have been an important springboard for the subject of this paper. I want to consider a key middle term between those of famine studies and memory studies, namely historiography and to examine and interrogate some current trends 
in recent historiographical famine works. More specifically, I want to explore the existence or perceived existence of an effective gap in existing historiography, which is seen to justify the wave of new publications concerning the Great Irish Famine, which have appeared in recent years. These include Coogan's book, published by Palgrave Macmillan, and Delaney's The Curse of Reason, published by Gillan Macmillan, and John Kelly's The Graves Are Walking, published by Faber, along with the immense achievement of the Atlas of the Great Irish Famine by Cork University Press, recent work by David Nally and Kieran O'Murka, and the significant essay collections Haldemore and Gorta Moore, and Recollecting Hunger, an anthology. I have to acknowledge my own surprise that such a range of publications would emerge in recent years, given what had seemed by 2000 or so the definitive historiographical work by James Donnelly and Peter Gray, most especially with regard to questions of government culpability. But one of the lessons of feminist methodologies, and here I'm revisiting in part my own publication Feminization of Famine from 1997, is that what may appear findings are often refindings, and that the process of discovering and uncovering very often brings an encounter with earlier processes of forgetting. In this talk, I wish to open up for consideration and reflection a series of observations regarding trends in recent historiographical work on the Great Famine. The first is their appropriation and deployment of narrative and fictive tropes, usually defended as the means of establishing greater narrative intimacy. Delaney's history provides numerous examples. From the outset, the work is presented as a narrative history with an interpretive dimension. Its objective, we are told, is to draw on the existing scholarship much of it not accessible to a broader audience, and present a distinctive interpretation. Though the evidence for such inaccessibility of books still in print and circulation is not given. Delaney chooses to individuate this narrative history through accounts of four people, John McHale, John Mitchell, Elizabeth Smith, Charles Trevian. In his words, each of these characters brings a unique viewpoint, retelling the well-known events of the Great Irish Famine through the lives and experiences of these four very different individuals allows for an intimate view on these tragic years. The prologue ends as follows, our story opens in County Mayo in the late 1790s. The marketing of this history emphasises that it is first and foremost a survey history offering an intimate and compelling portrayal of these hungry years. This is a strategy that has significant limitations, and despite the sought-after intimacy, many of Delaney's rhetorical flourishes have a clumsy and curiously distancing effect. On a number of occasions, not least in the odd title Curse of Reason, one senses that Delaney is seeking to engage with deeper political, even philosophical issues concerning catastrophe, the relative weightings of natural and human disaster, 
and how these complex issues can be apprehended. The last line of his book reads, Reason exacted an apocalyptic toll. Ultimately, this emerges as a much more complex, though unrealised ambition for a survey history. John Kelly's The Graves Are Walking takes its title from Yeats's Countess Kathleen. They say that now the land is famine-struck, the graves are walking. The reviews of the novel are especially striking. Adam Hochschild writes, I wish more people wrote history like this, fast-paced but carefully documented, lively as a novel. Its powerful intimacy is praised by Amanda Foreman, Richard Rhodes and Kathleen Kennedy Townsend, Senior Advisor to Secretary of State Hillary Clinton, while a lengthy and highly positive endorsement is provided by President Bill Clinton as follows. The Graves Are Walking is a cautionary tale for all who would risk calamity, human, economic or ecological, in the name of scoring an ideological victory. A globalisation discourse might lead us to read such comments with a certain complexity and to note the positioning of this history within a specific economic ideology and political practice. Yet Kelly's history is at its best in its analysis of political policy and the material consequences of its implementation. This includes the role and impact of the various celebrity experts, his excellent term, who visited Ireland earlier in the 19th century. However, on a number of occasions, the fictive mode takes over to poor effect. For example, the beginning of Chapter 10, entitled Snow. On the morning of November the 29th, Elizabeth Smith looked out her bedroom window. It was December now, and mass death was beginning. At such moments, the now apocryphal exam question from the late 1960s, The Great Hunger is a Great Novel, discuss, returns to mind. More problematic is the history's premature ending. It concludes its coverage in 1847 with a rushed survey of the post-1848 period in the afterword. In his closing comments, Kelly offers a direct engagement with a genocide thesis. In his words, the intent of those policies may not have been genocidal, but the effects were. But then finishes with a remarkably banal conclusion. No wonder in the decades after the famine, so many Irish immigrants were incapable of saying England without adding, God damn her. The third and final work to be addressed briefly here is Coogan's The Famine Plot, subtitled England's Role in Ireland's Greatest Tragedy, published by Palgrave Macmillan. The publisher's note describes it as thoroughly researched and passionately argued, while the self-description as an intelligent, thought-provoking and well-written history suggests an already defensive mode. Coogan's motivation in writing the history is at once clear and contradictory. In his words, the silence of Irish historians about the official hate creation and the stimulation of anti-Irish prejudice that accompanied the famine was, and to a large extent still is, remarkable. Take Curtis, for example. To put it mildly, Irish historians as a class have not done justice to the famine. 
What I've been terming the fictive mode is frequently apparent. For example, at the conclusion of Chapter 3, such was the stage setting for the horror story that was about to unfold in Ireland. It is now time to turn to the role of a number of the chief actors in the drama. There were, of course, millions of bit players, but their lines were not listened to and echoed only in graveyards. Although the reviews on the book's cover emphasise Coogan's meticulous research, very few footnotes are given, and as others have noted, few if any primary sources are employed. Yet lines like the following have a marked rhetorical resonance, which links back to Heaney's review quoted earlier. A people seeing food flowing along Irish roads to be exported from Irish ports very likely under the guard of Irish soldiers in British uniforms or Irish men in the police force, as their fellow countrymen died horribly in ditches along the roads, does not have its anger abated by references to economic theory. And while Coogan's references to a starving people inflamed by the sight of a single sandwich have a bizarre quality, his castigation of what he calls the theoretical arguments of the well-fed in a lecture hall is not without charge. Unsurprisingly, within the reviews and commentaries on Coogan's book, the issue which is dominated is that of government culpability, more specifically Coogan's restatement of the charge of genocide. Yet other historiographical features within his and other works have remained largely unremarked upon to date. One of these, arising directly from the trope of famine as story, is the positing of famine as a narratable event. That is, possessing a narrative that can be directly established and that can be told from beginning to end. This was an especially striking feature of the Blighted Nation four-part radio series, wherein episode one sought to establish a historical record of what happened and what was experienced. While aspects of this were very compelling, the episode lacked any reference to the difficulties of establishing that knowledge, how we know what we know, and its gaps and limitations. This leads me to identify a second trend in recent histories linked to their use of fictive tropes, which is their elision of earlier historiography and their suppression of historiographical complexity of the processes through which our knowledge of the past is mediated. Thus, eyewitness accounts are frequently quoted without contextualisation or in some cases without an attribution of source. This suppression of the problematics of knowledge is linked to the avoidance of an especially significant area for famine studies, namely that of intergenerational acts of transfer and their role in constructing and shaping a shared understanding. The Atlas of the Great Irish Famine, which I mentioned earlier, is an immense contribution to famine scholarship, offering, in William Smith's words, a geography of the dead, of where and why people died. Yet it too is not free of a tendency to what I would call historiographical flatness with regard to the generations of interpretation which have made its work possible 
or to the problematic status of that testimony which does survive. How succeeding generations came to know of the earlier disaster and the modes of understanding made available to them remain especially pertinent questions for famine scholarship. In other words, can we map a historical geography of knowledge, comprehension and interpretation? In this context, the lack of detailed attention to the generation after, what Marianne Hirsch has called the generation of post-memory, is especially regrettable. Some recent scholarship, most especially the Relocated Remembrance Project, led by Marguerite Corporal and I. Megan, which examines the Great Famine in Irish diaspora fiction, has begun to undo this neglect, and a turn to the subject of famine is a striking feature of scholarship on James Joyce and, more recently, W.B. Yeats. In the author's note to his dramatisation of the dead, Frank McGuinness notes that his play is haunted by two events. One is the Irish famine, which occurred within the childhood of Kate and Julia Morkin and would be an abiding memory to all the guests at this dinner. A recent article by Vincent Comerford entitled Grievance, Scourge or Shame, The Complexity of Attitudes to Ireland's Great Famine, sees a welcome redirection of attention to John O'Rourke, born in 1809, died in 1887, author of the 1875 History of the Great Irish Famine, a key historical text for the generation after. As Comerford notes, despite O'Rourke's having lived through the famine and his experience of a wide range of business, associational and devotional life in County Wicklow and Dublin City, one of the most remarkable features of this book, in Comerford's words, is the almost total exclusion of the author's own recollections of the period. His book speaks of the arrival and impact of a nationwide famine, but largely in the abstract. Comerford continues, The denial in which O'Rourke and his public engaged is compatible with deeply held grievance, but only if that grievance is subordinate to sentiments such as shame and insecurity. Comerford's ensuing observations on the reasons for the absence of significant scholarship about the famine before the late 1940s include an important rejoinder to some of the simplifications of recent commentaries on famine as trauma. In Comerford's words, this is not to imply that some ineluctable collective psychological trauma was in play. The explanation was to be found in a somewhat less tragic tactic of cumulative social dissimulation. Dissemble meaning to conceal, cloak, disguise. O'Rourke's narrative does include some powerful individual moments, most especially in his account of his visit some 20 years after the end of the famine, or in O'Rourke's words, after the famine scourge had passed away, to what Comerford terms the iconic famine pit at Abbey Struy Cemetery outside Skibbereen. That iconic status is more accurately, however, an effect of O'Rourke's 1875 narrative, partly due to the memorably detailed and material quality of his reflections. O'Rourke writes, A difficulty arose in my mind with regard to the manner of internment in those pits. 
Great numbers I knew were interred in each of them, for which reason they must have been kept open a considerable time. Yet surely I reflected something resembling internment must have taken place on the arrival of each corpse, especially as it was coffinless. The contrivance, as I afterwards learned, was simple enough. A little sawdust was sprinkled over each corpse on being laid in the pit, which was thus kept open until it had received its full complement of tenants. O'Rourke's passage is followed by a strikingly early and self-conscious discourse on what we might term memorialisation or commemorative practice. To trace one's steps slowly and respectfully among the graves of those who have reached the goal of life in the ordinary course fills one with holy warnings. To stand beside the monument raised on the battlefield to the brave men who fell there calls up heroic echoes in the heart. But here there is no room for sentiment. Here, in humiliation and sorrow, not unmixed with indignation, one is driven to exclaim, O God, that bread should be so dear and human flesh so cheap. The nouns employed by Comerford, grievance, scourge or shame, are an important reminder of the laden quality of famine terminology. Yet it is striking how little we who work in famine scholarship have theorised an emotional and effective register. Nouns such as shame and guilt are often blithely deployed, sometimes along with an unthinking use of terms such as trauma, or elsewhere as part of a bluntly expressed suspicion of emotionalism and a repeated underestimation of the power of the emotive. Little attention is paid to the production and circulation of emotions as a discursive economy, or, in Sarah Ahmed's words, affective economies. A more precise differentiation of shame and guilt, not as different emotions, but involving a different relationship of self to self and self to others, are usefully provided by Ahmed and Eve Sedgwick. Ahmed, quoting Donald Nathanson, notes that guilt implies action, while shame implies that some quality of the self has been brought into question. Thus, as Ahmed notes, in shame more than my action is at stake, the badness of an action is transferred to me. Similarly, Eve Sedgwick writes, in Interrupting Identification, shame too makes identity. And thus, survivor's guilt, and more generally the politics of guilt, will be better understood when we can see them in some relation to the slippery dynamics of shame. The persistence of shame in an affective register has been movingly expressed by sculptor Rowan Gillespie in his contribution to Vincent Wood's fine Arts Tonight programme on the famine in art, first broadcast on RT Radio, in December 2012. Here Gillespie recalls that, following his securing of the commission for the famine sculpture on Custom House Quay, his father enjoined him to stop. He thought it was so shameful. Writing in the context of the Discourse of Reconciliation in Australia, specifically in relation to the mistreatment of Aboriginal peoples, 
Ahmed warns about the consequences of the detachment of shame from individual bodies to a collective politics. To quote in detail from Ahmed, The projection of what is unjust onto the past allows shame to be represented here as a collective shame that does not affect individuals in the present, even as it surrounds and covers them like a cloak or skin. Despite its recognition of past wrongdoings, shame can still conceal how such wrongdoings shape lives in the present. It is shame that allows us to assert our identity as a nation, but in allowing us to feel bad, does shame also allow the nation to feel better? Ahmed's remarks resonate powerfully with recent remarks by Gary Hines concerning her staging of the Druid Murphy cycle, including the, for some, surprising choice of Murphy's famine. Hines writes, It seems to me that in these three plays, Murphy writes an inner history of Ireland, a nation that has now, critically, under the pressure of a debt crisis that has become an identity crisis, to re-examine the materials and rhetorical strategies out of which it makes itself, to throw them out it may well be, and start again. But this timeliness has something to do with much more than nationhood. It has to do with the question of trust. If we can ever trust nations to complete our sense of ourselves, we clearly can't trust them to ensure a livelihood. Fuller attention to the deployment of an emotional register, which can include shame, guilt or trust, is in turn related to the need to examine more carefully how the writing of famine history attempts to create the sought-after intimacy of representation. What A.B. Warburg termed in 1929 a storehouse of pre-established expressive forms is a useful characterization of famine representations whereby certain figures and testimonies Bridget O'Donnell, Captain Wynne, Nicholas Commons recur throughout recent studies. Whether these enable understanding through a productive, disruptive emotion or banalise through what Hirsch has termed melancholy replay remains a difficult question to answer. One narrative strategy which is underused in contemporary famine historiography would involve a greater attention to the original context of these scenes or more precisely, a restoration of their force as human encounters. As Ahmed usefully comments in her work Strange Encounters, encounters between embodied subjects always hesitate between the domain of the particular, the face-to-face of this encounter, and the general, the framing of the encounter by broader relationships of power and antagonism. The particular encounter hence always carries traces of those broader relationships. Differences as markers of power are not determined in the space of the particular or the general, but in the very determination of their historical relation. Thus, it may be worth restating the obvious here. At the heart of these famine encounters lie differences as markers of power, between those who are vulnerable and those who carry responsibility in its fullest sense. 
New digital technologies offer renewed opportunities to trace these genealogies of images as textual records and to investigate the processes of their transmission as tropes and technologies. The use of GIS technology to link civil parish maps to a census database by contributors to the Atlas of the Great Irish Famine has made dramatically visible the famine and its consequences. Alongside its extensive mapping are quieter contributions which have a powerful impact. One such example is Hilary O'Kelly's short essay on famine and workhouse clothing. What Willie Smith has termed the saddest map in the Atlas is that which details the percentage change in distribution of children under five years of age between 1841 and 1851, where many parishes, including my own home area of Mallow, experienced a devastating two-thirds decline due to deaths or births that did not take place. Other contributions provide intriguing insights into changes in family occupations, changes in the occupations practised by women and men, and the gender distribution of workhouse inmates. While it is important to acknowledge that significant limits exist as to the demographic information available and to the reliability of what exists, more work could be conducted, for example, on the comparative fate of individuals within various institutions in relation to famine mortality and survival. Within Irish famine historiography more generally, the gendered dimensions of mortality and distress remain insufficiently explored, beyond brusque references to general patterns of mortality. Instead, a historical perspective attuned to issues of gender might direct us to some further consideration of what occurred within and across families, combining the domestic and the public, not towards a valorisation of the experiences of men or of women, but towards a scale of inquiry other than the national, regional and the vanishing point of the individual. My final diagnostic comment, therefore, with regard to famine historiography is to highlight its failure to engage with gender as a category of analysis. The arguments for undoing this failure, or perhaps more accurately, this suppression or rejection, involve my revisiting aspects of feminization of famine after some 15 years. But with the benefit of the deeply suggestive models of inquiry, offered by Ahmed, Hirsch, Sedgwick, Cavarero and others. Why gender matters involves a threefold answer, and I'm borrowing heavily from Hirsch here. Firstly, the possibility of new frames and scales of inquiry. Secondly, the foregrounding, in Hirsch's terms, of structures of mediation and representation. In other words, Gender perspectives require a problematization of knowledge rather than its valorization. And thirdly, the reinstatement of political questions attending to the power structures that animate forgetting, oblivion and erasure. In summary, gender, again in Hirsch's words, 
can offer a lens through which to read the domestic and the public scenes of memorial acts. Many recent studies of memory emphasise their ambition to forge connective histories. In the context of Irish famine studies, in contrast, one is struck by various fissures and newly apparent disjunctions. For example, between academic and popular histories and between aspects of Irish America and famine studies in Ireland. What remains relevant here are the continuing limitations in our imaginative apprehension of the relentless unforeseen and how such limitations can be appropriated and manipulated. It is worth re-examining why this knowledge matters and what a connective history means, since it has become almost fashionable to express suspicion of easy solidarity with Ireland's famine history. While the lines of continuity between then and now can be and have been articulated in overly simplistic terms, their total refutation and the resulting vacuum has itself negative consequences, wherein objections to the genocide thesis can be heard as an apolitical, even anti-political hollowness. At stake in current debates are quite urgent issues relating to our contemporary structures of knowledge. What mediating forces are gathering power and how deserves our conscious reflection and continuing engagement. You have been listening to Professor Margaret Kelleher in this UCD ScholarCast. A transcript of this lecture is available to download at www.ucd.ie forward slash ScholarCast.